Welcome to this presentation of First Baptist Church Logan. We're glad to have you joining us today. Our mission at FBC Loeb is to bring glory to God by being disciple makers. For that purpose, we present the following resource that it may be a blessing. All right, grab a Bible, turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. In case you use one of our pew Bibles, you'll find that on page 987. As Travis stepped behind the pulpit that morning, the church had never been so interested in what he was about to say. We've come to a transition point in this letter. And so just to recap briefly, to set the stage for what's coming up, uh, let me summarize just briefly what we have seen so far. Paul and his mission team established a church in the city of Thessalonica during their second missionary journey. Uh, but then uh, later on they were forced to leave prematurely because of persecution. And despite their best efforts to return and to continue working with the church, they were stopped repeatedly. And they were forced to endure a period of not knowing how this group of new believers was doing under the circumstances. And so eventually Timothy was sent back to check on them, and he was able to spend some time continuing to teach them and developing permanent leadership for the church. And then he brought a report back to Paul, assuring him that the church was alive and well, but not without some areas where they needed to grow. And so in light of that report, Paul is writing this letter. And so far, he has spent time thanking God for the Thessalonians, for the, the way that they have responded to the gospel. He has taken time to explain why things have happened the way that they have in his absence. And now going forward, he's going to give them further instructions and address some of the areas where the church needs to make some adjustments. And as he begins this morning, we're going to be reminded of the call for believers to glorify God in their sexuality. And so we're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we're going to begin with verse 1. Paul writes, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus, that just as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you remember, for you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. And so as we move into chapter 4, uh, Paul begins by calling the Thessalonians to continued obedience in their lifestyles. He says, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus, that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you're doing, that you do so more and more. And there's a, a seriousness to Paul's words here. Right? He doesn't simply ask them to do this. And he doesn't just urge them to do this. He asks and urges them to do this. And that combination of terms serves to highlight the importance of what he's saying. And as he often does, Paul uses the metaphor of walking to refer to the way that we live our lives. And so this second part of the letter is going to be devoted to Paul uh, working and to, to get the Thessalonians to understand the importance of living in a way that pleases God by obeying his commandments. And there are a number of aspects to this first section that we need to see uh, in order to, to, to set the stage for understanding the rest of the letter properly. So first of all, we need to see that Paul emphasizes that these words are ultimately from the Lord. 
right? In verse 1, he asks and urges them in the Lord, which is to say on behalf of the Lord. And then in verse 2, he reminds them of the instructions he gave them through the Lord, which is to say in the authority of the Lord. And so we're reminded that Jesus chose Paul to be his spokesman. And so what Paul says, Jesus says. There's no tension between them. And so Paul reminds them of the teaching that he gave them during his ministry in Thessalonica. But the ultimate significance of these instructions are that they come from the Lord himself. Secondly, we need to understand that obedience to these instructions is mandatory. When Paul writes that believers ought to walk and to please God, the word ought more technically refers to something that is necessary. Something that is necessary. And when when Paul uh, refers to the instructions that he gave them in verse 2, that word instructions is more technically orders or commands from a military context, where you're certainly expected to obey. And so obedience uh, is not... Uh, optional. It is necessary, mandatory. And so this fits with a, a consistent theme that we've seen in the New Testament, which is that genuine faith in Jesus produces obedience. Right? We are never perfect in this life uh, by any means, but genuine Christians seek to follow Jesus. And on the other hand, someone who engages in ongoing unrepentant sin indicates that they don't truly know the Lord. And so in light of that, the third thing that it's important for us to see here is Paul affirming how the Thessalonians have already been obeying. And he calls them to walk and to please God just as you are doing. And so from his time with them during his ministry in Thessalonica and now from Timothy's report to him from his journey there, Paul can see that the Thessalonians are genuinely trying. That the Thessalonians have a genuine desire to follow the Lord that comes through in how they live. Again, they aren't perfect, but they are genuinely trying. And so Paul affirms the evidence of God's grace in their life. And finally, and in light of the previous three, Paul wants the Thessalonians to keep growing in their obedience. He asks and urges them that as they receive from him how they ought to walk and to please God just as they are doing, that they do so more and more. Because we never reach perfection in this life, there's always room for us to improve. And so Paul calls on the Thessalonians to keep pushing in the depth and the consistency of their walk with the Lord. So the the instructions that Paul is going to give moving forward ultimately come from the Lord himself. Obedience to them is not optional, it's mandatory. And because the Thessalonians are already working in obedience in these things, Paul calls them to continue working them out more and more. And with this in mind, starting in verse 3, we're going to see how this applies to specific areas of our lives. And so we'll pick up again, beginning in verse 3. He writes, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. 
Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So picking up again in verse 3, Paul elaborates on his point. He writes, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. Now, last week we talked about the concept of holiness, and we saw that, that for something or someone to be holy means that it is set apart for God and, and for exclusive use for his purposes. Right? And the, the idea of sanctification is, is directly related to that. Sanctification is the process of being made holy as we gradually become more and more like Jesus in our attitudes and our actions. Right? Sanctification is the process of being made holy, the process of being set apart exclusively for God and for his purposes. And Paul says that sanctification is God's will for our lives. Now, typically, when we think of God's will for our lives, we're thinking about major life decisions that we're trying to make. And so, where should I go to college? And who should I marry? Or what job should I pursue? Things like that. And certainly, all of those questions have answers. But what we see here is that underlying all of those situations, God's will for our lives is that we become increasingly more like Jesus. So anytime, any place, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, God's desire is for you to become more and more like Jesus. And that's not to say that all of the other concerns that we typically uh, identify with questions of God's will, it's not to say those things are unimportant. It's just to say that our main concern, no matter what else happens, the main concern of our lives should be that we are actively becoming the people that God has called us to be. And then in the second half of verse 3, Paul moves to explaining how God's desire for our sanctification applies specifically to our sexuality. He says that you abstain from sexual immorality. And so to abstain from something means to avoid it, uh, to not engage in it. And the term that we translate as sexual immorality is, is a broad term that refers to any sexual activity that takes place outside the boundaries of a man and a woman who are joined together within the covenant of marriage. Right, so the, the term that we translate as sexual immorality is referring to any kind of sexual activity that takes place outside the boundaries of one man and one woman who are joined together in the covenant of of marriage. And so if you try to manipulate any part of that definition, then you come under the umbrella of sexual immorality. Everything from lustful thoughts uh, in our hearts to fornication uh, to homosexuality, uh, so on and so forth. Anything uh, adultery that, that happens outside. Of, in other words, if something is happening outside of these parameters, then it shouldn't be happening. And so the implication is that sexual immorality is opposed to sanctification. We can't be actively engaged in sexual immorality and also be devoted to God's purposes at the same time. As our creator, God has designed our bodies and our minds and our emotions to work in certain ways. And it's important that we use them in line with his design. And when we do... We honor his purpose for our lives, and when we don't, we rebel against his purpose. And obviously, you can't do both of those things at the same time. Moving on to verse 4, Paul writes that God desires that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness 
and honor. Self-control, the ability to do what we should do, is one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. And honor, the term of honor, is referring to having respect for oneself and for others. It's talking about having integrity in our personal relationships. Paul expects us to interact with one another in ways that respect the boundaries that God has placed and established for sex. We see in verse 5 that this stands in contrast with the passion of lust. So the passion of lust does whatever it desires in the moment. There's not, not very much thought about what's right or wrong. There's very little consideration of whether or not this is going to work out well in the big picture over the long term. And the, the passion of lust just says if it feels good, then do it. And Paul says that this approach characterizes Gentiles who do not know God, which is simply to say unbelievers. Of course, the, the moral depravity of the Roman Empire is well known even today. Uh, there, there were a few practices that were considered to be inappropriate. But by and large, pretty much anything went in the Roman Empire. And there were uh, sexual deviancy was woven into the very fabric of society. Uh, Things that that we would consider to be inappropriate today were expected even. Particularly if you were a citizen of the empire or if you belonged to the upper class. So many, if not most of the Thessalonians, came to faith in Jesus out of a background of a lifestyle that was marked by a variety of behaviors that conflicted with the expectations of the gospel. And so this was an area of life where these new believers would need to be vigilant and diligent. And in verse 6, we see that the Lord desires that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. And we're reminded here that while sin always has consequences... Sexual sin often has significant, major consequences. And so oftentimes today we'll hear the argument that, that something's not wrong as long as nobody gets hurt. Right? As long as you've got two consenting individuals that no one's getting hurt, then it's no big deal. But the reality is that when we go beyond God's boundaries, somebody always gets hurt. We, we may not see that or recognize it in the short term, But any time we go beyond God's boundaries, someone always gets hurt. Again, as our creator, God has designed us to work in certain ways. And when we choose to operate outside of those boundaries, things go wrong. And so it's just like your car. The manufacturer who designed your car has designed it so that the oil needs to be changed every so often. This is how your car will work at its best. Now, You don't have to change the oil in your car. You can bristle up at the idea of someone telling you how you're supposed to take care of your vehicle and say, nobody can tell me how I'm going to take care of my car. And you can insist on not changing the oil. And, And if you do that, you'll be able to drive for a little while. But over time, if you insist on not changing the oil in your car, eventually you are going to break down. And the very same thing is true when it comes to us living according to God's design. Whether we realize it or not, there are always consequences when sexual boundaries are crossed. Someone gets hurt, a relationship is destroyed, family, friends, children get caught up in the middle, all kinds of things. And, And the fact is that research and statistics bear this out. Study after study after study has found 
that, that crossing sexual boundaries, any type of sexual immorality, whether it's use of pornography, or whether it's cohabitating outside of marriage, or whether it's transgenderism, sexual immorality has devastating impacts on individual lives and on society as a whole. And in many ways, we are just now beginning to see the full effects that it has in our society today. And so because of this, Paul warns at the end of verse 6 that the Lord is an avenger in all these things. Now, this should go without saying, but I've been preaching long enough to know that you can't assume things. When Paul refers to the Lord as an avenger, he's not talking about the Incredible Hulk. He's not talking about Iron Man. All right? He means that the Lord brings about justice and will avenge, he will judge those who unrepentantly pursue sexual immorality, hurting others and damaging society in the process. All right, the point is that God takes this very seriously, and we should also. At the bottom line, as we see in verses 7 and 8, is that God has called his people to holiness. All right, as, as believers, we are called to reflect who God is in our own personal character and in our lives. And consequently, Paul notes that whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God. And once again, Paul reminds his readers that, that these words are ultimately coming from the Lord. They're not coming from him, so don't hate the messenger. Right? He notes at the very end of the passage that God gives his Holy Spirit to us. God enables us to obey him in our lives by the power of the Holy Spirit. And in light of that, it is nothing less than a slap in the face for us to ignore that and to pursue sin instead. And so in our, our passage this morning, we see that the stakes could not be higher. And so Paul calls the Thessalonians to continue pursuing sanctification by abstaining from sexual immorality. As we consider the implications for our lives, it's really a straight shot from the ancient world to our society today. Right? Our society is increasingly like the Roman Empire in terms of its sexual uh, uh, sin and, and the things that are commonly accepted or even celebrated. Right? Frankly, the only thing that seems to be taboo anymore is the idea that there are certain expressions of sexuality that are inappropriate. So one thing that has changed over time is that we no longer have to go looking for sexual immorality. The reality is that sexual immorality today comes and looks for us. Right? Modern technology has completely changed the game in that regard in a thousand ways. And so sexuality has always been a critical component of discipleship, of what it looks like for us to follow Jesus, but never more so than today. And the, and the fact is that this struggle affects everyone in some form or fashion. It doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman. It doesn't matter if you're single or married. It doesn't matter if you're young or old. Right? Increasingly, we have elementary-aged children who are being pressured to send compromising pictures of themselves on their iPhone. And on the other end of the spectrum, one of the most likely places in the world to get an STD is in a nursing home. Right? So everywhere in between, this is a battle that affects everyone. And we live in a, a society of sexual sin like fish live in water. The sensuality is all around us. 
and in a thousand different ways. We are tempted to believe that satisfaction and fulfillment can be found outside of the boundaries that God has given to us. Right, but Paul's concern isn't the world. Right? And the world's going to do what the world is going to do. Paul's concern in this passage is that the church be characterized by the holiness that God has called us to. And in this respect, one issue that we have to reckon with is the reality that for too long the church, at least the church in America, has, has not effectively equipped and prepared its people to handle the onslaught of temptation that we face in the world. Now, I don't know if it's just awkward to talk about, or, or if our leaders in the past simply felt inadequate for the task, but the primary approach, at least in my experience, has simply been to say that sexual immorality is wrong and you shouldn't do it. And then you move on to the next topic without really giving anyone any real help or, or handles on how to process the, the myriad of ways that we may be tempted to, to engage in sexual immorality. Right, we've settled for giving people morality apart from the gospel. And as someone more clever than me has said, giving people morality apart from the gospel is like giving a starving person a cookbook. Right, it's great that I see what I need to do, but I have no ability to do it on my own. Right, and so on top of that, uh, it, it, we've created this church culture where if someone is stuck in sexual immorality then they either, they either suffer in silence or they risk feeling shamed for being such a loser. And so it's, it's brought us to this point that, that people who come to faith from a background of sexual sin have no idea of what to do about it. And even people who grow up in church their entire lives are woefully unprepared to face the challenges that we have of sexual temptation in the world. I don't think you have to be a theological rocket scientist to realize that this is not an effective way to approach discipleship. And we have to change that. And so where do we go from here? Well, I think there are two things that we need to do. First of all, we need to continue telling the truth. We need to continue telling the truth. In the midst of a culture where just about anything goes, we have to be upfront about the truth that God has created our bodies to work in certain ways, and that our, our bodies do not belong to us to do whatever we want. And we have to, we are responsible for living according to God's design. And that life works best when we do that. that. We have to continue to be honest. We can't compromise the truth. But secondly, we need to cultivate an environment of grace. One, one of my very favorite sayings when it comes to repentance, when it, whatever kind of sin that we're talking about, is that it's okay to not be okay. It's just not okay to stay there. It's okay to not be okay, but it's not okay to stay there. On the one hand, it's okay to not be okay. We should expect people to struggle with sin. We all do. Right? We are all naturally sinners. This should not be a surprise. Right? The reason that Jesus came and died for us on the cross is because every single one of us is in need of redemption and restoration. And so if you find yourself stuck in some way, it's okay. Everybody is. It's okay to not be okay. But on the other hand, it's not okay to stay there. As we see in our, our text this morning, the Lord calls his people to holiness, to submit ourselves to his design. 
And so we have to be, we have to pursue obedience in life. Again, it is not optional. And so if you're here this morning and you're stuck in some form of sexual sin, my hope, my sincere hope, is that you do not feel personally attacked in some way. Because that's not what this is about. That's not what this is about at all. My, My hope is that you will consider the fact that the God who created you knows how things work best. And that the fulfillment and the satisfaction that you're seeking can only be found by turning from your sin and embracing God's love for you in Christ. My prayer is that you believe that there is hope for change. And that whatever your experiences may have been in the past, that there are people here at First Baptist Church Loeb who want to love you and who want to walk with you through whatever struggle that you're facing. It's okay to not be okay, but it's not okay to stay there. But the good news is that because of the gospel, the Lord will enable us and empower us to follow him. He's given us his word, he's given us his spirit, and he has given us the community of the church. And so there is reason, there's every reason for hope. And so if we can all agree on that, then we can move forward in an environment of love where people can be honest with where they are and actually begin making steps, making progress to where they need to be. And so this morning, my prayer is that we will pursue ongoing sanctification by abstaining from sexual immorality. Let's pray together.